Okay then, Victor Peasant Podcast, episode 100, finally. So on August 22nd, 2016, um, the first episode of Fictoplasm launched, we talked about Anne Leckie's Ancillary Justice. So it's just after five years, this is episode 100. And I'm going to celebrate by covering one of my all-time favourite bits of fiction, which is Grant Morrison's The Invisibles. And The Invisibles is big. I mean, it's got three volumes and 59 issues between 1994 and 2000. Um, So rather than jam it all together into just one episode, I'm going to spread this out a bit because there's a lot to cover. You know, there's the setting, there's the arcs of each volume, there's the influences... There's the outright plagiarism by the Wachowskis. And because of this series was concurrent with the early World of Darkness releases, for me, the one definitely influenced the other. I ran two campaigns, both of which were strongly influenced by the Invisibles. So for this episode, I'm going to focus on the first arc, which I think forms the most coherent and satisfying storyline. You know, it's it's kind of a bit like a Netflix series in that respect. The way the first season arc in a decent series normally resolves in a fairly um, satisfying fashion with just a few elements for later. And then in a later episode, things can be a little looser, you know, diving into the more obscure elements that um, add texture. So anyway, I'm going to go through the setting and pick out the gameable elements from it and talk about the mage games that I ran and magical urban fantasy more generally. This is a synopsis for Volume 1, and to sum up The Invisibles, it's anarchist mages fighting an establishment headed by authoritarian gods for the fate of the entirety of existence. It features a, uh, a strong comparative religion theme, a lot of mysticism, but also super spies, um, toffs in hunting gear, hunting the homeless, transvestite witches, time machines, fiction suits, fictional universes, uh, a microscopic antagonistic universe, magic mirrors. That's, all sounds pretty good, huh? So there's a lot to unpack. Um, so first, I, I suppose I should outline the two sides. On one side, you've got the Invisibles, which is a cell of magician spy anarchists with a diverse set of backgrounds who exist in a world of multiple personalities and cover stories, picking away at the illusion of reality. And these characters include really colourful names like King Mob, Ragged Robin, Lord Fanny, Boy, Jack Frost, Jim Crow, Jolly Roger, Mr. Six, um, and also allies to their cause. Uh, their bad guys are the outer church, and they are the status quo, you know, the hierarchy based on rigid reality, consumption, lack of imagination, suppression of humanity. And they include the Archons, the sort of the, the controlling angels that guard this reality and keep everyone locked into the physical world. So it's a so it's a Gnostic kind of setup. Uh, and they have their servants who are the Myrmidons, who are basically foot soldiers, some of whom, though, are physically modified. Uh, and they have things like four dimensional liquid armor. And there are also personalities, uh, the most significant uh, throughout the series being Samars Delacourt, who is... Um, it kind of typifies the British establishment, so uh, it's kind of it's a has a very British feel to it, and certainly the whole of the first arc is entirely contained within England. The first volume then has five distinct acts, um, although they were actually collected into three separate trade paperbacks, I think. But I think it's worth splitting them out. So the opening four issues are called "Down and Out in Heaven and Hell," 
and it covers the magical awakening of Dame McGowan, um, who will eventually become Jack Frost uh, and become the newest member of the invisible cell led by King Mob. Now, Dane's a working-class boy from Liverpool who likes to steal cars and set fire to things, so after burning down his school, he's sent to a reformatory called Harmony House where boys are made to conform to the establishment. And this place is totally over the top with its Orwellian imagery. You know, it's obviously the seat of the power for the bad guys. But before Dane is lobotomised and castrated, he's rescued by King Mob, this this flamboyant, bold assassin with facial piercings, who's basically a, a fictional avatar for Grant Morrison himself. And King Mob kills a load of guards and the prison supervisor, Mr. Gelt, and then abandons Dane on the streets of London at the end of the first issue. And in the remaining three issues of this uh, first act, Dane lives on the streets and contends with all manner of weirdness that supposedly most people just ignore or are oblivious to. So, for example, there's these arcane rantings about elf generators at Speaker's Corner. Um, there's a bunch of stuff about um, upper-class people in fox hunting gear chasing down the homeless with machetes. There's weird monuments that appear. Um, there's Big Ben with 13 hours. I think I think that's in there. I might be thinking of something else. Um, airships in the sky. Uh, heavenly bodies very, very close to Earth. Um, there's also the occult significance of certain London buildings like Canary Wharf being built on a major dragon line to basically suppress the magical awareness within the city. And the person who initiates Dane into all of this uh, is Tom Bedlam, who appears to be this mad old tramp, but who's actually one of the most accomplished living magicians. And he's able to basically switch off every light in the city by snapping his fingers. You know, he... he he swaps Dane's eyes with those of a pigeon so that Dane can see the monsters squatting on St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, and at the end, he, I think he survives the fall from the top of Canary Wharf. Uh, Dane's initiation concludes with his meeting the divine entity Barbalith, although it's not really clear what this is at the time other than a big ball of red light. Now, this first art was illustrated by Steve Yeovil um, because I understand Jill Thompson wasn't available. I'm really, really keen on Steve Yeovil uh, since he illustrated Zenith, and I can't really imagine this art being illustrated by anyone else now. Um, it's also worth noting, by the way, that this sort of hidden homeless magical London shtick predates Neverwhere by two years. Alright, moving on to the second art, which follows directly on from the first, and it's collected in the first trade paperback. Um, the second arc is called Arcadia, and it follows directly on with the Invisibles travelling to 18th century France using a psychic time machine in a windmill. Um, so Jack Frost is still a neophyte, and one important fact here is how Jack is a replacement in the cell for John O'Dreams. Um, something happened in the past with John O'Dreams and King Mob where they discovered this experimental colony and a what they called a, a time suit, which looks a lot like an elder thing, um, which we think was a body used by extra-dimensional beings to allow them to move about in our three dimensions. And this drove King Mob temporarily insane, and John O'Dreams just disappeared, so they don't know where he's gone. And this is actually a mystery that will continue throughout the whole of the arc. Time travel in particular is a theme throughout, and the method used in Arcadia is a windmill, which allows the cell to cyclically project back in time. Now, later in Volume 2, King Mob uses the same sort of trick to visit the 1920s. So they've gone back in time, following a trail of clues of psychic and magical disturbance, 
and in the course of the arc they find and initiate the Marquis de Sade into the Invisibles, then split the party three ways. So you end up with King Mob Boy and the Marquis travelling back to their temporal point of origin via um, a fictional reality of uh, the 120 days of Sodom and then a 1970s San Francisco fetish club. Meanwhile, Jack Frost and Lord Fanny are back in the windmill and they're having to deal with a skin-stealing demon called Orlando. And finally, Ragged Robin finds herself in Rene Chateau, uh, meets a blind chess player in a white suit, who may or may not be Satan, and, spoilers, may or may not be John of Dreams, we're not sure. Uh, but um, there's nothing to indicate that at the time. And then she enters this church to encounter the outer church's ciphermen, who are basically the, the conditioned foot soldiers in gas masks and long coats, and they obsess over dissecting things, and they show off their treasure of the Templars, which is uh, the head of John the Baptist speaking in tongues. And this speaking in tongues, this sort of um, jumbled up language and people hearing what they want to hear, is also a theme that goes on throughout the whole three arcs. Now, all of this is intercut with scenes of Percy and Mary Shelley and Lord Byron meditating on the nature of life and interacting with other characters, including the blind chess player, actually, I think. So they're all kind of implicated in the magical landscape as well. Are they actually magicians or are they simply aware? Not sure. Um, but this arc ends with uh, Jack losing a finger to Orlando, um, and he's generally not impressed with the Invisibles. And at the end, he basically abandons them as the rest of the characters fight to escape the Outer Church's Myrmidons whilst they're, uh, they're surrounding the, the windmill. That issue is issue nine, and it's called Things Fall Apart. Then we have an interlude of three issues, which are standalone vignettes. Uh, there's one called Season of Ghouls, which introduces Jim Crow in an exciting but kind of predictable story about white corporates using... Uh, magically engineered crack cocaine to possess black youths and use their bodies to commit rape and murder. And it ends with the, the white guy's comeuppance. You know, how could it not? And the main thing we get from that story is some background about the relationship between the gods or major spirits of the invisible mages, uh, as well as the concept of the magic mirror, this sort of uh, breath from within that uh, is exuded by magicians and can be used to shape reality, pass through into the spirit world, that kind of thing. Um, and also the mirror thing then continues on with the next uh, standalone item, which is Royal Monsters, which is really the long overall arc of the whole series. Um, and it's about this idea of a Lovecraftian monster called the Mooncalf living in a mirror that's actually the future King of England. And as well as um, there's some background about how the British establishment and the outer church function and corrupt the rest of reality and control it completely. And the last one in this three series is Best Man Fall which is the backstory of one of the mooks killed by King Mob in the very first episode at Harmony House, and it concludes with just King Mob storming in and killing him. Um, and it's it's a really brilliantly realised episode that humanises an otherwise faceless character. All right, the third arc then, moving on, is Lord Fanny's backstory. As, um, I think I'm, Venus as a Boy is the first issue, and it's generally called Apocalyptic. Um, so Lord Fanny's backstory is a Brazilian transgender witch. Um, and in this, all points in time from her initiation at age 11 to the present day in London happen simultaneously. There's lots of stuff about the magic mirror here. There's 
journeys through the underworld and encounters with gods and beings from, I think, Aztec cosmology. And this is intercut with the present day where Sir Miles has dispatched an agent to track down the invisible cell. And that results in King Mob and Fanny being captured. King Mob is uh, critically shot. And this kicks off the arc for the rest of this volume which is a kind of race against time to rescue the captured mages before King Mob either dies from his injuries or is broken under interrogation. I think of these, uh, of the whole arc, I, I love the whole arc, but this particular one I particularly enjoy because of the way that the different time periods all happen simultaneously and the idea that um, four-dimensional space is all folded in on itself and you can contact different time periods um, and of course, you know, Lord Fanny is one of the most interesting characters in the in the whole series, I think. Then we get a brief episode just after that, which is devoted to Jack Frost, who's who's just run away, and he's coming to terms with the events in the windmill where he ended up shooting one of the enemy soldiers just by accident. He he nicked King Mob's gun when no one was looking, and then he just uses it to defend himself and accidentally kills the other guy, and that has been preying on his mind since. Um and the episode does involve a second contact with Barbalith, which is framed in terms we can better understand. It's now framed as alien abduction, in which Dane is implanted with a crystal that will open his third eye and help him awaken magically. And then we're getting into the final arc, which is entropy in the UK, I think is the way it's phrased. And there's three issues that focus on a character called Gideon Stargrave, who is one of the many alternate personas of King Mob. So King Mob has been captured. He's in an outer church facility. He's been interrogated by Sir Miles. And he's been dosed with a drug called Key 17 that makes it impossible for him to tell the difference between an object and a word describing the object. So Sir Miles only has to drop a bunch of post-its on the floor with the word finger on each of them to convince King Mob that he's had his fingers chopped off. And as King Mob is going in and out of consciousness, he imagines multiple versions of the character Gideon Stargrave, which is obviously Jerry Cornelius with the serial numbers filed off, both in attitude and dress, and in the construction of each vignette and the way that the text is written. Um, and I must say, I'd only read the bare minimum of Jerry Cornelius stuff at the time, um, but it was a bit like, oh, I know it when I see it, and it was obvious that is what he was emulating. Um, I was previously aware of Zenith and its alternatives, so the idea of multiple different versions of the same character from different universes was, was also fresh in my mind as well. So this three-issue arc is also where we delve into King Mob's backstory, and it's the first time we're really introduced to the idea of multiple cover stories and backgrounds. And King Mob was originally Kirk Morrison, the wealthy horror author, but he may also have been Gideon Starazowski and Gideon Stargrave and others. You know, we see these training montages far away somewhere in, in some Asian retreat. You know, we see him commune with a, a fish-shaped UFO at Ayers Rock and other life events. And on the other hand, this could be a clever ruse to defeat interrogation by seeding the truth with lots of different cover stories, but it also suggests that he is all of these characters and lives simultaneously as all of them. So it's this repetition of the idea of everyone living their whole life in the same instant in multiple dimensions, um, the idea of personalities worn like suits that allow you to travel to different realities and that kind of thing. Then, after these three issues, we get the last interlude before uh, before the final showdown. 
um, which is, uh, first of all, there's Boy's backstory as a policewoman in New York getting wind of conspiracy to put undesirables into off-the-books concentration camps. And then the second episode is Jack Frost as he finally gets back to Liverpool, gets closure with his previous life as Dane, and then he's reunited with Boy and Ragged Robin and they prepare to bust uh, King Mob and Fanny out of the uh, enemy stronghold. And the last arc then is called House of Fun. So the trio are joined by two other characters for the rescue assault, one of whom is Jim Crow, and the other is Mr. Six, who's been masquerading as Dane's history teacher for the last nine years. And he's also another fantastically accomplished magician. Um, so there's a memorable, memorable bit when um, Dane is basically being you know, ambushed by the bad guys at his mum's flat. And Boy and Mr. Six, as uh, I think it's Ian Malcolm, is, is his cover story. They all turn up and and Jack stroke Dane just blasts everyone with psychic energy. And Boy turns up and said, oh, you, you just knocked out Mr. Six, one of the scariest magicians in the world. But anyway, the climactic bit is Gonzo. Um, it's basically the protagonist going into a dungeon and having all manner of things thrown at them, including uh, zombies, enemy agents in liquid armour, one of the Archons, which tries to coerce Jack Frost into a kind of magical duel, it's, that's an episode called The Last Temptation of Jack, and it loses, obviously. The whole of reality threatens to break down as this massive, um, well, they describe it, I think they describe it as some kind of psychic abscess that is ready to burst. And Mr. Six fixes things, you know, fixes this fissure in reality by making a personal sacrifice of the identity of Ian Malcolm. So he sacrifices nine years of a previous identity uh, in order to generate magical energy to heal the rift. King Mob and Fanny are rescued. Uh, Jack Frost, um, having fully magically awakened now, heals King Mob just like that. He basically just sort of plucks the bullet out and then uh, just heals King Mob completely. And there's plenty of scope for the next season as well, because Samiles survives. And King Mob thinks that he's killed Samiles by ripping off his psychic aura. Um, and in one last act of, of sort of uh, reconciliation, uh, Jack Frost actually just gives him his aura back. So he's he's basically saved the life of the enemy that has that has um, abducted King Mob and threatened everyone. And of course, the church is still fully active, so plenty more to do in the next series. And then there's one last issue after this, basically a coda which follows Mister Six investigating this overarching conspiracy in the in the wake of the rescue. Um, so he's shared his previous personality as uh, Ian Malcolm, Malky, um, and now he's much more of a sort of Jason King type character. So he's heading up Division X. Now, there's been sort of uh, notes about Division X previously about reactivating some weird uh, sort of uh, police secret cell of, um, well, people investigate magicians and... Um, so far, we're not we're not really sure whose side they're on because we only see them briefly. But here we get uh, Mister Six heavy, heading up Division X, and this is basically the two of the characters are John Thor and Dennis Waterman from the Sweeney, um, who play opposite uh, Mister Six's Jason King as P Peter Wingard, um, Peter Wingard's Jason King, and these are all mashed together to form Division X, which is basically seventies um, British cops as psychic investigators. Um, and this is a bridging episode that will lead into the second volume, and it touches again on the plot to install the moon calf on the throne, and notably it has a videotape of the moon calf having sex with Princess Diana. 
And that's notable because this issue is dated October 1996, so it's uh, before Diana's death in August 1997. I'll talk about that in a bit. Um, it also introduces a character called Quimper, who was the major antagonist in the second volume. But that's the end of the whole first arc. So, I have a number of things to talk about because it was really influential for me. I think it's important to discuss the first volume separately from the other two because each of those volumes changes or certainly changed my perception of the overall plot. And the first volume is the most obvious them versus us setup. And he uses the awakening of Dame McGowan as Jack Frost as the, the vehicle to take us along. The good guys, the invisible cells fighting against the establishment who are representatives of a cosmic conspiracy typified by privilege they're the upper class and corporates playing on the masses with no accountability now morrison even uses striking images like fox hunters to underline that yes these really are the bad guys um, and they think they can just do what they want and then at the higher metaphysical level the outer church is the bastion of this evil and the the archons are the skeletal gods who guard reality and you know stop humans ascending to higher awareness um and before I'd read The Invisibles, I associated Archons with the enforcers of the Justicars in Vampire the Masquerade. You know, and then I read about Gnosticism and learned that Archons are basically the malevolent rulers of the Earth who keep humanity locked into the material plane and manipulate our senses, thoughts, actions. Helping out The Invisibles are these little grey aliens as well. And they're not really aliens, they're kind of described as antibodies for a sick universe. And this sickness is the actual situation. So right at the start in that first arc where Tom Bedlam swaps Dane's eyes for those of a pigeon, he tells Dane that the world has this sickness in it in which cities are a symptom. And before we lived in harmony with the earth, and now we're consumers locked into the cities. And of course I lap this up because I had been heavily invested in the mythology of uh, Mage of the Ascension, and particularly the idea of the weaver, the wild, and the worm, and the idea that the weaver went insane and locked the worm into reality. So again, it's um, whether other people had that perception or, or you know approached Mage in that way, all of this joined up and gave me a very Gnostic sense of what Mage of the Ascension should be. And so um, all of this is a powerful premise for a game of mage. And that's what I ran around 1995 or so. So crucially, that's before the, uh, the series ended. But I was picking up plenty of the, the, the style and the cues from it. Um, and mostly I ran the Mage, the Invisibles campaign uh, on the strength of the first four issues, which really inspired me for what a magical awakening should look like. Um, that said, really, I just ran Mage with an invisible skin. So I took all of the imagery and the counterculture look, but less of the counterculture itself. You know, I, I did paint the technocracy as men in black with uh, fourth dimensional liquid armor, having the technocrats locking down all of reality, the characters forming an invisible cell as a cabal by another name. And there was the struggle for reality, of course. And, and I added some of my own elements, like doing away with the traditions and suggesting that the exiled heads of the conquered chantries were actually versions of biblical angels. And I was into the biblical apocrypha at the time as well. So 
that heavily influenced it. Um, I did have Sir Miles, or a Sir Miles, as one of the bad guys, and, and a lot of the enemy were rooted in the British establishment. And again, it was a good fit, you know, it, it, to place the technocrats in positions of real power because, you know, they knew that they couldn't be touched because they've effectively won the war. Um, I think that the third edition of Mage, The Ascension, does have something about it. It's is set after the war has been won. I've got a copy. I've never read it. I've always always worked from the first edition and, uh, you know, loosely skimmed it at best. Um, mostly I went on feel. So anyway, it, it played out much less like The Invisibles because rather than, say, um, hitting out against the establishment with, uh, you know, magical guerrilla warfare, they would instead do what I find a lot of World of Darkness stuff does, which is the individual characters wander around like tourists in the magical underground. You know, they're, they're drawn into various schemes of the factions, but ultimately they're just being themselves. Um, I find that a lot with World of Darkness, to be honest, you know, you, you've got a really good feel for who the characters are and how they present themselves, but less of a feel for where they're going because it still comes from a culture where the storyteller is always in control. And also because basically there's the, the conspiracies are so vast and so numerous, I seriously think that, you know, as a starting player, you're going to wonder what my character can do. Who are they affecting? Why are they going to affect it? And so the scale in which people, most people engage with World of Darkness is going to be the city scale, and it's going to be city scale hierarchies. Um, the prince uh, and the prince's enemies and the enemy factions and sabbat but it's all going to be centered around a location which i think is is not a bad principle to go with because that's you you should have a scale that everyone can appreciate and everyone can understand and then you bring in external elements um having a having a massive multiversal uh, psychic conspiracy on a Gnostic level and, and talking about comparative religion is all very well, but but it's kind of sort of something that the, the GM can wank over, but does it actually make it to the table? Does it, does it actually have play value? Something to discuss, I guess. Anyway, uh, moving on. The other campaign I ran, which I think was a bit more successful and a bit more coherent, was also based on the Invisibles, uh, and that was Department V. So I nicked the idea for Division X, but then Division X nicked the idea from um, from 70s British detective shows, including Department S, which had Jason King in it. So um, anyway, my version, Department V, had two sets of characters. Now, one was from the original department back in the 70s, who were the men in brown corduroy. Um, they got roped into an investigation about multiple clones of a young woman being farmed by the baddies. So it was all a bit boys from Brazil, except one of the young women would grow up to be Princess Diana. But that investigation got cut short and the department was wound down by the establishment because they were getting too close. But then time in was when it got restarted in 1998, just after the death of Diana in Paris. Um, so the two old investigators, you know, who are the Sweeney, got joined by a new generation of detectives and from there we got the classic CSI lineup where they just investigated stuff. We did even have um, one of the characters, Dr. Spiker, being the forensic expert and, and he was in, ended up being um, a xenobiology expert dissecting things that looked human but weren't, that had extra organs and all sorts of things. So I had a lot of fun with biology. Anyway, 
I was using the invisible skin on what was really a World of Darkness investigation game, although you know I'd, I'd heavily hacked the supernatural conspiracy so it looked nothing like the World of Darkness. Uh, instead, there were 13 tribes from Atlantis who were microscopic psychic colonies that were pilot human bodies. Um, and I, I think that I also took as much inspiration from the Hellblazer series Royal Blood by Garth Ennis, where Prince Charles is possessed by a demon and goes full Jack the Ripper. Um, but it was it was a really easy sell setting wise you know the good guys being occult maverick police officers driving around london in a jag chasing magical terrorists and the bad guys being the english aristocracy you know kind of works if you think about it like that now reflecting on those two i was just thinking what would i do if i did things again or what would i take from the invisibles today that was actually more in keeping with the plot of the invisibles um Neither of the games I ran were really the Invisibles. They borrowed the visual elements. Uh, so things that are good in the Invisibles, I think, are, first of all, the network of invisible cells. You know, they, they do communicate with one another, but largely they're all in the dark about what the others are doing. So you have the PCs aware that there is, um, there are other invisible cells knocking around who are also coordinating their efforts, but, um, the the way they communicate is kind of obscure and no one's really sure who is going who's on which side and what everyone's agenda is um now the second thing about the invisible cells which i think is actually really gameable um they're organized on elemental principles of fire water earth air and spirit and each of these has a different role in the group so air is always the leader earth is Earth is the the physical stuff. They they do things like procuring guns and um, booking hotels and stuff. I think um, spirit is some kind of like magical insight and direction. It's kind of like the, the the fool in the tarot. It's a wild card. It's it's kind of giving people new perspective. That kind of thing. Um, and these roles change as well uh, as they do at the start of volume two. King Mob was previously the leader, uh, having the air card. He then uh, that when they reshuffle things, he takes on Earth. And I think Ragged Robin takes on air and becomes the leader after that. Um, and that, I think, is very gameable because uh, regardless of who the individual characters are, they'll always have a sense of what they need to do in the team, what their role is, uh, what other people are looking to them to do. And I kind of like that as a, a sort of adding a skin over their existing characters about, and, and that kind of directs how they're going to behave. So I think that's actually quite useful. Now, another thing about The Invisibles is it's much more proactive than, say, a World of Darkness game. So you need to give them targets and let them choose what to engage. And that's not what happened in uh, Mage and World of Darkness games. A bit more in um, in Department V, because I, I ran it partly as like a monster of the week uh, with a hook. And as soon as the hook was there, they said, yeah, let's, engage, let's investigate this. So it, it was following classic investigation patterns. Um, but uh, you want a system that encourages the PCs to be more proactive. Um, and I'm thinking something like uh, something that simulates a heist like Blades in the Dark or um, Hollow Point. Hollow Point's a great system, much underappreciated, but it doesn't actually, it's not intuitive for most people. So that's the system. Um, then the last thing is the layers of identity, which is probably, um, probably the most complex, but also I think it's, you, you could still make a game out of it. So let's say each PC has a multiple cover stories, some layered over the top of others, some separate, 
some can be sacrificed for magical power, as Mr. Six does. Uh, and the way that these can be stripped away or corrupted is explored a bit more later in the series as well. Um, but for the game system, I would go for a kind of modular approach that has a bunch of core skills and then other skills, uh, knowledge and personality partitioned off into specific identities. So say you're using the storyteller system, most of the traits would sit on a core sheet, but then you could use the passions and the fetters from Wraith to describe the individual identities. They would have uh, a specific demeanor for those identities. Um, they might have some traits of their own that don't exist for the other identities, that kind of thing. All right, time's moving on. So I'm going to move on to the media section because I know that there'll be, there'll be more to talk about in in later episodes when I come back to The Invisibles in the other two volumes. So I want to talk about media. And the first thing I'm going to talk about is The Matrix. It's widely understood in the fandom that the Wachowskis ripped off The Invisibles for The Matrix. Um, but until I reread this recently, I hadn't appreciated just how much and this, by the way, doesn't diminish the value of The Matrix as a movie. It's a good movie. Um, but it's very much, I, I think, that uh, if you like The Matrix, then you should at least be aware of The Invisibles. So, obviously, you have the whole Gnostic angle of The Matrix trapping humans in a certain material reality. And that, in itself, isn't that original anyway. Um, because we've got plenty of contemporary examples, like uh, Dark City. Um and the 13th floor, which I think lost out to the Matrix for best SF film that year, 1999, I think. Um, also, I think some of the sets on Dark City were repurposed for the rooftop scenes in the Matrix. But anyway, in The Invisibles, you have a messianic figure in Jack breaking out of the program reality, eventually awakens, and at the end of the arc, he heals King Mob saying, it's all zeros and ones, uh, implying that he's simply rewriting King Mob's own code to heal him. Uh, the interrogation between King Mob and Samars is so similar to Smith interrogating Morpheus, right down to the frame-by-frame -frame progression. There's jumping off buildings, there's the dojo scene, there's the biomechanical machines, which look so much like the soldiers of the outer church, there's the good guys in black trench coats and the enemy agents who wear dark glasses, um, there are implanted bugs that need to be extracted from the body. There are oracles, there are fetish clubs, there's the magic mirror. Um, there's even the mention of Zion, I think, and you know, the list goes on. So in Anarchy for the Masses, which is the disinformation guide to the invisibles by Patrick Neely and uh, Kerith Kauspigai, I hope I pronounced that right, um, the authors, or one of the authors, interviewed Grant Morrison, um, and they have this to say. So I'm just going to read this quote on... Grant Morrison on The Matrix from Anarchy for the Masses. Uh, and the interviewer asks, can we clear up how you feel about The Matrix? And this is what Grant Morrison has to say. The first time I saw it was in Melbourne. I saw it on acid with some friends. I just thought it was the greatest fucking movie I'd ever seen in my life. It was fantastic, but then I came back home and thought it was great. It's like this stuff. But Mark Miller said, it's so like this stuff, you should go back and read volume one of The Invisibles again. Then I got kind of pissed off because I saw how much they lifted. And he goes on to say, 
it was that close. I don't think that they could deny it. After the initial rage, when I really went through it plot point by plot point and image by image, the jumps from buildings, the magic mirror, the boy who's being inducted called the one, the black drones, the shades, the fetish, the kung fu, the dojo scene, the whole thing, the insect machines that are in fact from a higher dimension, which supposedly enslaves their own, the entire Gnostic theme. But then I began to think, well, wasn't that what the spell was supposed to do? Quit griping. So he goes on to point out that sort of part of the point about it was mainstreaming these ideas, which didn't have um, the same kind of pop culture penetration at the time. And, uh, and ultimately, he's kind of upbeat about it and the way that the Invisibles have inspired the Matrix and those ideas have been mainstreamed by the Matrix, which is a very successful movie. So like I said, I don't think this diminishes the power of the Matrix in the movie, but what it does is highlight how pedestrian the Matrix might be by comparison, uh, and in particular how disappointing it becomes when the mythology uh, abandons the Gnostic stuff in the second film and becomes more like Catholicism. Okay, um, I'm going to talk about some games now. Uh, I've said once or twice that when I was playing Mage, I should have actually been playing Over the Edge. And that's not only a very fine system that's very loose in design, which is just how I like it. It's also a suitably weird setting where there are multiple agencies and underground conspiracies. And ultimately, if I wanted to have agents with multiple cover stories, I might need something a bit more substantial. But um, tone-wise, Over the Edge is spot on. Although it could also be because at the same time I was reading Grant Morrison, I was obsessed with David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch and, and yeah, other weird fiction as well. Um, I think Ron Edwards' Sorcerer might work. Part of that game is about being immersed in your character. Um, the core principle of making magic and sorcery extremely personal and integrated into your belief system does really fit. And Sorcerer's visual diagram uh, that covers the, uh, the lore, price, kicker and cover um, that's really effective at mapping out the character's magical identity. You know, the character sheet is one of the really innovative tools in Sorcerer, I think, whereas a lot of the other parts of Sorcerer are much more to do with an attitude to play that's come out of a particular indie culture. Another game uh, is Unknown Armies, which I have not played. I've got a copy, I've never played it. Um, probably be very well suited to an Invisibles type of game with the different kinds of magicians, you know, the Invisible Clergy, I think. Taking on the roles of certain avatars, um, just like the Invisibles take on elemental identities. Um, all right, next game I want to talk about is Nephilim. That, that's a... That's a game where you play spirits inhabiting the bodies of people throughout history and gradually transforming the human host into something supernatural. Um, now, it's kind of... Uh, it's not helped by the Chaosium system, which I, I really don't think that it, it, it works for it. Um, but I can see you working the multiple Invisibles identities into a single character using that system. Uh, Nephilim, of course, assumes a linear timeline and the characters' past lives are placed on that timeline. Um, but, of course, one of the things in The Invisibles is the idea of a whole of a life being accessible simultaneously. And it's just another dimension that describes a being. I think riffing off the Arcadia and other time travel plots, I would enjoy a game where you play one set of characters emerging at different points in time to progress a wider plot but having those characters be aware of all of their identities at the same time 
So you could plausibly start in the 20th century and then go back to the 18th, whilst still going forward in the uh, in the plot arc and the the group narrative and you know the personal plots. And the last game I want to mention is probably Continuum, which is interesting for its big picture as well as the time travel stuff. So, you know, the, the Continuum exists at one end of the time spectrum and want everything to conform to a single timeline. And the narcissists come from the other end of the timeline and want the whole of reality to be free of such constraints. And that sounds a lot like the struggle between the Invisibles and the Outer Church. Unfortunately, uh, again, it's another case where the, the game system is not very accessible, but it does have these wonderful uh, whole timeline described of different um, zodiacal ages. And uh, and I, I really think that it's, it's exciting to read for that, just not as playable in its own thing. All right, the last thing I want to mention is I would like to point you to the Mega City podcast episode on the Invisibles. And I covered this in one of my Sunday blog posts a while back where I said this, quote, Sounds a bit pretentious quoting myself, but anyway. Um, quote, One of my all-time favourite comic book series in this episode really nails it with the commentary on how King Mob is a fiction suit for Morrison, on how this is kind of transitional for Morrison, but similar to his more introspective stuff, like the later Filth, and how Dead Man Fall is possibly the greatest episode in the series, and perhaps of anything Morrison has written ever. Plus, there's the comments on how the Matrix ripped off the Invisibles, remarks on the artists for the first and second arcs, and how the second arc was particularly brave and challenging for the audience, which subsequently declined. I too love Steve Yeovil's art in the first arc, and I can't imagine what it would have looked like if it had been illustrated by Jill Thompson. Other interesting remarks are about how in the 90s there was no internet, and therefore no readily available info on conspiracy theories, meaning such fringe knowledge gained a kind of currency, and how this is to Morrison what the Sandman is to Gaiman. I'm really looking forward to the podcast revisiting the subsequent series. And that's it for this episode, I think, so thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe on social media, that kind of thing. And also, I have a Patreon. Patreon. God, I'm not sure which way I should be pronouncing that now. Steve Dempsey may be very insecure. Um, anyway, I have a Patreon, and if you like my stuff, you could support it. I've got two tiers, um, and at the higher level, with the Shapers, you get to actually propose books that I should read and put on the podcast. Otherwise, all the patrons get a piece of uh, draft writing that I do each month and um, and obviously support the podcast, which I am very grateful for. So if that sounds like your thing, please check it out. Music, as always, for this podcast is by Chris Zabreski. Find out more at chriszabreski.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.
And there's one last episode, which is the coda. And this follows Mr. Six investigating the overarching conspiracy in the wake of the rescue at um, what we call the House of Fun. So this is after he's shed his personality. I didn't get that. Could you try again? Stop.